We've been thinking through the questions. Who are you? How'd you get here? Everything really depends on that. We've looked at and discussed that you are one who bears the image of God. You are a special, direct creation of God. When God spoke of the creation of human beings, he said, uh, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have, now here's an interesting word right here, dominion. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The next verse says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The next verse says, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, here's another strong word, subdue it. And he uses this word again, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the ground. So two words we need to think about, dominion. And to subdue something, dominion. What are we talking about? The word dominion. There's an interesting word, dominion. I guess I need a crown on my head. That's what kings have. They have dominion. So is that what this word means? Well, in Hebrew and in English, it means that very thing, sovereignty, control, having supremacy, dominance, superiority, lordship, authority, preeminence, mastery leadership. Look at those words. Sovereignty, control, supremacy, dominance, superiority, lordship, authority, preeminence, mastery, leadership. That's a big word to describe what you and I are called to have. Then the verb to subdue. How can we do that? Subdue. What is it? What are we talking about? Well, the verb means to overcome, to conquer, to overpower, to subjugate, to master, to suppress, to tame, to vanquish, to trounce, to crush. All right, I think I got it now, right? Now I understand. We've got to crush and dominate and overcome and suppress and be at the top of the heap of everyone else, right? Is that what we're talking about here? Let's look back at our passage again. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, we've got to look at what we're subduing. It. Subdue what? Subdue it. The earth. Subdue the it. It is the earth. And to have dominion over, look at these things, the fish, the birds, the things that creep on the ground. Verse 26 said, says anything that moves on the earth. So we've got to think rightly about what these two words mean. We've already pictured this. God created this, uh, this garden, this place for them to be. He reflected his glory and his majesty and his image, the qualitative nature of who he is in male and female. They can procreate. They can reproduce. They're supposed to reproduce and create children, and they're all supposed to uh, take this wild, untamed place with all these wild, ta- untamed animals, and they're supposed to get everything in order. They're supposed to subdue the planet tame and subjugate everything and have lordship over all of these things so that they can produce food, for instance. They got to fill their table full of food. They got to get all that cultivated by subjugating and subduing and showing mastery over the earth. And not only that, certainly throughout the scripture to make things beautiful, to take the raw resources of this world and turn them into something useful, something beautiful. Well, um, if I don't get to be the king of all these other people, uh, and it's about being dominant over things, I don't really have anything, so I don't know what exactly I'm supposed to have dominance over, especially if I'm a junior higher or a high schooler. Well, there are a few things uh, perhaps you need to start to learn to exercise some dominion and power over. The Bible says you're made in God's image. God is a God who sovereignly controls things. You are called to sovereignly control things. Well, there has to be leaders in this world. You're right, and there has to be leaders in the world, and there will be leaders in the world, but these words are not words that we want to use in the sense that the world uses them. Jesus put it this way, um, you know, there are rulers in this world of the Gentiles. That means these are people that don't know God. They don't follow God's word, and they lord it over. They have this kind of, uh, this mindset of being higher and better than everyone else, and they're great ones. You can put that in quotes. They exercise this authority over them. 
So they're very heavy-handed, and they want to subject people the way that we're supposed to subject the earth and the things and the animals of the earth. A lot of people treat other people like animals when they get any power at all. Jesus said it's not supposed to be that way among you. We're going to need leaders. We're going to need teachers. We're going to need guides. We're going to need captains. We're going to need pastors. We're going to need bosses. We're going to need managers. And that's part of God's economy. But whoever's going to be great among you, they're not there trying to get everyone to serve them. As a matter of fact, they are to be the servants of everyone else. Good leaders are always trying to serve the people that they lead. They're trying to serve the people that they teach. They work hard to make sure that they are a benefit to those people that they're called to lead over. To be first among them is to be the servant of them all. But that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. We can talk about a lot of other things that you are supposed to have dominion over. You all have a space, I'm assuming. You may share it with a sibling, but you have a space. You may not own a house. You may not uh, be a boss of a company. You may not have some division of people that work under you as employees. You don't have some segment of some market out here in the commerce of capitalistic America. Uh, but I'll bet you got a few things in a drawer and probably a few things that should be in the drawer that are on the floor. And the Bible says you got to start there. Matter of fact, if I were speaking to little children, little tiny children, I would say to them that they could understand my voice in English, you've got probably a toy box. You've got a little corner of a, of a room somewhere that you have control over. You, you can exercise dominion over that. And the Bible says you are um, not a godly person if you don't oversee what you have control over, if you don't do that well. Matter of fact, uh, the Bible calls you names like this, the word sluggard. You're a lazy person. You're a loaf. If you don't control the areas that you are responsible to control, and since I'm speaking to a lot of you that have a room in your home, your parents' home, uh, this is applied to a person who owns a house, but you've got control over a room. You need to think about the man who owns a field or a farm, and if you pass by the field of a loaf of a lazy person or by the vineyard where he's supposed to be growing things of a man who lacks sense, now he's getting very offensive and insulting, well... Uh, if you look at that guy's house, it's overgrown with thorns. The ground is covered with nettles. Its stone wall is broken down. Well, if it breaks down, you should fix it. If there's weeds, you ought to weed out the, the garden. If there's thorns, you ought to get out there and work to make things right. So we need to start thinking about exercising dominion. Even if we were sitting here talking to first through third graders, you've got an area that you have control over, that you should be exercising dominion. You should be taking things, organizing them, making them beautiful, making them useful, having them be under your lordship. That's what God has called you to do. You reflect his character. Unfortunately, that's not what this generation is known for, is it? Uh, exercising a kind of qualitative discipline over the things that God has called them to master. And the Bible says that many of us quickly fall into making excuses for not doing that. The sluggard, the lazy person, the loaf, uh, they'll say all kinds of things. Like, well, I couldn't go out there and work on the, on the, on the wall today, the stone wall that was broken down, because there's a lion out in the road. I might get eaten. There's lions in the streets. Really what they want is to hang out and relax, to sleep, to chill. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard, if you watch him long enough, he'll even bury his hand into the dish, and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. We didn't have nice little silver spoons like you do, but like you put in your spoon in the cereal bowls, you're wiping the sleep out of your eyes. And if you don't do that with the kind of enthusiasm to face the day, to conquer the day, to take care of the things that you're called to exercise dominion over, the Bible has got words for you. So perhaps you've fallen into what so many have fallen into. The sluggard, if you track this theme throughout the book of Proverbs, should go look at God's creation. God created some things that have very small brains, but they're exercising dominion better than human beings are. He says in Proverbs chapter 6, you ought to go to the ant, you lazy person, you loaf. That shoe fits. You ought to think about the kingdom of the insects. Consider those ants. Consider the way of the ant, and you should be wise. Because you can look at the ant and there's no manager sitting over them. There's no mother coming in saying, make your bed, clean the room, fold your clothes. None of that's taking place, but the ant's doing his work. doesn't have a chief or an officer or a ruler, but that ant is preparing her bread in the summer. Why? Because winter's coming. And gathering food in the harvest in the fall. Why? Because it's going to be a long winter before spring comes around. And what about you, human being, that's crowned with glory and honor to exercise dominion over God's creation? 
everything that you have, every object that you own, everything that is under your care, how long are you going to lie around and be passive about those things? The next verse, verse 9 says, when will you arise from your sleep? The Bible says it's shameful, really, if we love sleep more than we love work. The Bible says it's shameful if we love sleep more than we love work. The one who gathers in summer, that's a prudent son, who's out there in the fields and is ready to work, ready to do what God has called him to do, to exercise dominion, because as God exercises dominion and is the ruler of heaven, he expects us in his image to be rulers of earth. You've got a little corner of the earth, maybe a smaller corner than it will be one day, but you need to prove faithful in managing and overseeing and supervising the small corner of the world that God has called you to now. If you sleep in the harvest when it's time to work and instead you're lying around in bed, then the Bible says you're a son that brings shame. You bring shame not only to your parents, if they're wise parents, but you bring shame to God because God created you as his son, his daughter. You're to exercise dominion. Well, I just love sleep. Well, you shouldn't love sleep. The Bible says do not love sleep. Don't love it. We all have to sleep, but we sleep so we can get up in the morning. We should love the morning and getting up, even if it feels hard, even if it's difficult. Because if you love sleep, and that's your goal, if that's what you enjoy, and if you really feed on sleep, if that's your thing, and you think, I just want to sleep, I want to relax, I want to chill out. The Bible says your future doesn't look good. You'll rely on other people. You'll be a leech, and you'll leech off the system as much as you can. You'll never be the person God intended you to be to reflect his image, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. You'll have not just enough bread to feed your, your belly. You have bread in, in, in surplus. You'll be able to feed other people. And all this gets back to what, the whole purpose of us seeing ourselves as God's creation, created in his image, right? Not the physical image, but the qualitative attributes of God being leader and exercising dominion. He is God. He rules. Now he creates these images, literally the Hebrew word idols, and these representations of him are supposed to now rule and exercise dominion. He says that throughout the Bible. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Then take that seventh day off, and then he made that a sign to Israel as a covenant ceremonial sign where they would do certain things on that day. We don't have that ceremony anymore. We don't have that symbol of the Sabbath rest, but we have the rest, and we're supposed to take the rest. But that's not the point here in this passage. The point is that six days you got to work. Why? Because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, and then he rested on the seventh day. He worked six-sevenths of the time. And you need to be working six-sevenths of the time. You need to see this as your reflection of the God who made you. He endowed you with glory and honor and lordship, and jurisdiction, and mastery over things, and you ought to get to work at that. The perfect man, Jesus Christ himself, showed up, and he said, my father is working, and I'm working. He works all the way through. He didn't just work at creation and just rested. He's continuing to work. He upholds the universe, and you know what? I'm doing the same thing, because I want to be like the father. I want to reflect his character. Jesus is our example to exercise a continual commitment to work. Because you know, there will be a time when you have no more time to work. We must work the works of him who sent me, he says, while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. And that certainly was a picture throughout the day of a man in a farm agricultural setting who had to go out and harvest. And at some point, right, the sun would set and he couldn't work anymore. He talked about that just in terms of his life. And he knew he was going to the cross. He only had so much time to work. And you need to think about that, not only in your day, because every day is going to run out and you're going to get to the place where you're going to have to go to sleep. Your day of work is going to be over and your week of work is going to be over and your junior high is going to be over and your high school is going to be over, your college is going to be over, then your working life is going to be over and you better do all the work God has called you to do because you're called to exercise dominion. Well, I'm sure glad I live on the middle left side of the map because we've got a whole lot less work to do here. That's good. I know those other backwards countries, you know, those kids come out and they got to get, get to work, man. They got to be cracking rocks and they got to be working on getting their foods together. And, you know, when they're 12 and 13, they're out laying cement because they got to do this to keep their city and their streets in place. And I mean, the seven, eight-year-olds are out carrying food around from the markets on their heads. And you're right. You're right. There's a lot of things to do just to sustain a culture in many places. You say, well, I'm sure glad I'm an American because, uh, you know, I don't have to do all that. Mom just goes to Costco and brings home the stuff and she puts it all away and then she cooks dinner and 
Dad brings home the money to make sure he can pay for the Costco. If you think our generation, and I say our, I mean your generation. If you think that we can honor God by saying it's so glad that we don't live in a country like they live in so that I can spend my teenage years chilling out and relaxing. You don't understand you were made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God to work. If I were talking to first through third graders, I'd be talking about their dominance and lordship and supremacy over one little corner that they have control over. If it's a toy box, that's your world, and you should be mastering that. You ought to be subduing it. You ought to be exercising lordship supremacy over those things. We all have work to do. I know it's summer, but you have a job. You have a job really that goes beyond just school, but you've got stuff that you've got to do. This is the expectation of this segment of your life. Yeah, you are blessed. You can be learning algebra while a lot of people are out there cracking rocks or laying cement at your age and other places in the world, but that doesn't mean that you're off the hook. You can put your feet up and just flip through your phone all day. You understand that, right? You and I have a responsibility. You are privileged to live in a place where your mom can go to Costco and your dad can pay for it and you don't have to go out and harvest the fields. Congratulations, that's a great thing. But that must mean that God put you on the timeline in a particular place in the world so that you could do some other things that might even be more advantageous for the world. But you gotta work, whatever it is. You don't have to crack rocks. You don't have to pour cement. That's great. Whatever your hand finds to do, whatever it is that you're called to do, whatever it is that you are allotted to do, you ought to do it with all your might. And I don't find a lot of that in our generation. I say our generation, I mean your generation. Well, I go to school. I got sports. That's great. I'm not. I'm even talking about that. I'm talking about you engaging in whatever it is. If you're in the chess club or if you're on the football team or you're on the track team, whatever you do, Whatever it is, if it's not sleeping, when you're awake, whatever you do, even down to having your meals, the Bible says, you ought to be thinking about reflecting the glory of God. You're glorifying God. Why? Because you're exercising dominion. You're controlling your environment. You're controlling things around you. You ought to do it all heartily. That word is a word that literally means it translates, if you were to translate it in a dictionary, a Greek dictionary, it means your soul is involved. It's not just going through the motion, I gotta go to school, I gotta do my homework, I gotta go. Now I go to basketball practice. You put your whole heart into it. That's exercising to me. That's reflecting the image of God. By the way, the reason you're blessed to be able to be learning things like uh, math and science and, and literature is because you know that all that's preparatory for a kind of thing that God has called you to do to work. You probably won't work in the fields and grow your own food for a living, but you got work to do, and it's going to end up being that you need to start thinking even now about where you're ending up. You're going to have a job one day. And you need to think that through very carefully. As you think about what God is calling you to do, just know this, that it'll be the primary way that you show the image of God in this world, that you reflect the image of God with the job that you do. That's the primary way you do it. And I want to give you a little bit of pastoral advice about that. All of your peers that have no understanding of the image of God and they have no interest in pleasing God by expressing the image of God in this world, all they really care about is how much money they can get. That really is their concern. Because the more money they have, the more time they can spend lounging around, and that's not our goal. Our goal is to glorify God by working heartily with whatever it is that God has called us to do. So I need to think differently about this. I need to make sure that money doesn't become my motivation. Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's a big Bible word, but it means greed, that I just want more money. I want more stuff because life does not consist, right? It's not made up really of the abundance of his possessions. I've known a lot of people speaking last night of last night's topic of people killing themselves. I've known several that have a lot of nice things. They got a nice car in the driveway. They got a vacation home up in the mountains, but their life is a mess. They realize my life is not about how much stuff I got, how many square feet I have, what kind of car I drive whether or not I got a lot of clothes in the closet, whether I can afford a big uh, toy from some uh, catalog, whether I've got um, you know, a, a big basket full of groceries and I don't even care how much it costs, I'll buy the best steaks and the best stuff. That, doesn't that does not make life. It's not about that. As a matter of fact, life is going to be fulfilling when you're fulfilling the role God has called you to fulfill, which is working and exercising dominion. It's not about money. 
Matter of fact, the Bible has a lot of things to say if money becomes your motivation. And I sat there in youth group, just like you're sitting here now. I remember talking to guys I respected, and I started thinking, well, I don't know that you're really saying what the pastor is saying or the Bible is saying when your goal is just to get a job that can make as much money as possible. And I found guys completely losing their bearing in anything related to God because of that. The Bible calls those kind of children accursed children. They have hearts trained in greed because that's how they grew up. They wanted bigger toys. They wanted better stuff. They wanted to be first. It was all about feeding their appetites. And the Bible says that's a bad thing. Matter of fact, that's a huge word to describe people that follow nothing but their greed. I want you to think about your future. I want you to think about it not in light of how much money you can make, but I want you to think about it in light of God's revealed word. You need more time studying the Bible, thinking about how God has gifted you, how he's wired your brain, and to think about how God is going to use you to exercise dominion in the world. Because you're made in his image. God is ruling heaven. He's going to have you rule a little corner of the earth. What corner of the earth is he going to have you rule? I need you to spend more time in the Bible. I need you to spend more time in prayer. You need to right now be asking the question, God, what is it that you want me to do in this life? That's why you go to schools. One of the reasons. You can glorify God by getting a lot of information in your mind, but the information in your mind is going to glorify God when you can use it in the jobs that God has called you to accomplish. If I can give you a little parental advice, let me say this. A lot of us will start to say, ah, I guess I can learn not to just chase the, the almighty dollar. And maybe it's not about making the most money, but I think a lot of you think there's a lot of jobs that are beneath you. And if I can give you some pastoral and parental advice, I think you need to be willing to do a lot of jobs that right now you may think, well, that's not a very exciting job. That, is, that seems like a lot of hard work. That seems like it's rough. I'd rather sit within a, in a corner office in some cushy chair telling other people what to do. I need a lot of you to say, no, wait a minute, that, that is not the goal. The goal is to figure out how I can utilize my life to exercise dominion over a corner of this world that God has allotted to me to control. So what can I do? And it may be framing. It may be some kind of, 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 of technical work. It may be some kind of, of, of industrial job. It can be something that it seems to you right now, like I just can't even imagine if I told my parents that's what I want to do. I really think that I can glorify God in that way. I mean, you think, well, they'll look down on me if I want to take, you know, a shop class in high school or auto mechanics or something. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think my parents want me working at, at Pep Boys. Listen, don't think that any job is beneath you. That would be a little parental advice I would give you. I'd also remind you of a biblical re uh, reminder from Genesis chapter 3. All work's going to be hard. As my dad told me when I went out to get my first job, he said, son, remember work is work. And that's a good thing for you to remember. Whatever job you get, even if you get the cushy corner office with the big leather chair. I guarantee you this, it's going to be hard because we live in a fallen world. So get ready for hard work because it's not going to be just work. It's work work. It's hard work. And then I would say this, if you think, well, I'll decide later. I don't know how many college freshmen I've met. I say, what are you majoring? And I don't know, undeclared. I don't know. Can you get past that? Hey, you may aim right now at the wrong thing, but you know, you can always course correct, but you shouldn't be one of those college freshmen that goes, well, I don't really even know what I want to do. Stop with that. Your parents might have aided you in that by giving you absolutely no direction. But it's time for you to find direction. How? In the Word of God and in prayer. And to say, God, what is it that you, that you want me to do? And it's not about how much glory I can get, how big of an office I can get, or how much money I can make, but how can I exercise dominion to glorify you in this world? Let me speak to you women for a second. We talked last night about one of the greatest privileges of all. And it has nothing to do with you going out into the world, ladies, and having some, what, quote-unquote, powerful job where you're pushing papers around or telling people what to do in boardrooms. That is not the pinnacle of your opportunity as a woman in this world. That is not. Let me remind you of the most powerful women in the world. Most powerful women in the world are not people that go into a boardroom and tell men or women what to do and then when they're done, or when they get transferred, or when they quit, or when they retire, everyone goes, I'm glad they're gone. She was such a witch. You understand that. Or even if they give you a gold watch on the way out and say, well, you served us well, and then you go on and they get the next leader, the next powerful woman in there. I'm just telling you, that is not the end all for you. You have an opportunity that us men do not have. And it's to do something with new life, to form new life within your body, to have that life come out and you be the number one influence on a human being's life. Do you understand that? 
Do you understand that, that the most powerful women in the world are the women that recognize the glory of God and the dominion that God gives, even in you having children? I know I pushed that last night. Some of you may even have parents who don't even like the fact that I pushed that last night. But for you to understand your role in this world that can be powerfully magnified, it's put this way in the passage I quoted in Psalm 127, you can be like an, a, a, a one who sharpens arrows and directs them into the next generation. And those children will be a greater joy to you when you see them walking in the truth and making a difference for the Lord than you ever would saying, well, look, look at what a big company I ran. Look at how much money I pushed around on a spreadsheet. Look how everyone called me ma'am and were afraid that I might fire them. I assure you the greatest job in the world, especially if God has equipped you, number one, with a romantic interest. See, that's, that's foundational. We talked about it last night. To be a mother of children. There's nothing more powerful you, than you can do. Not pushing around papers, but maybe pushing around your child in a laundry basket and recognizing that your brain, your love, your intelligence, your understanding of life, your discipline, your, your insight into God's word, you being able to have that as your focus in life. And not just trying to squeeze it in between some career and, and the cat and the dog, and maybe I'll get a kid and I drag that kid off to daycare and have someone else take care of my child. I'm telling you, there is a great power that you have to influence the next generation in a way that us, as men, we just can't do. Not the same. You want to see the most powerful women in the world, they're not going to be on the cover of Forbes magazine. A lot of people can push papers around. A lot of people can tell people what to do in a boardroom. Not many people can take young lives from the time that they are conceived, nurture them within your body, and then bring them into the world one, two, three, whatever God might bless you with. And blessed is the person whose quiver, their home is full of them. That's the greatest joy that you will have. It is the greatest responsibility that you will ever have. It's the most powerful thing you can ever do to exercise dominion in this world. I know I showed you a lot of glossy photos up here that make it look like a breeze, but ask any mother in the room. It isn't easy, and the reason it's not easy because you live in a fallen world. So I'm not trying to paint a picture that being a mom is going to avoid all the trouble in the, in the office. You're not going to be out there framing some, some, some house and some development track or not there with an with a architectural plan trying to figure out how people should build their building. And that's going to be the hard work. But you at home, that'll be so idyllic and so fun. It's going to be hard. Ask any mom in the room. It's going to be hard because we live in a fallen world. It's going to start with pain and it's going to continue with pain. The woman is cursed in Genesis 3 with pain starting with the childbirth itself. And in pain, you're going to bring forth children. And the next line, it says, and the home life that looks so idyllic in these nice photos I threw up on the screen, it's filled with conflict even with your own husband because your desire is contrary to your husband and yet he is going to be called to be the leader in that home and it's going to be tough. There are going to be power struggles. There's going to be dynamics of difficulty. You've watched your parents, haven't you, argue with each other? It's not easy. I'm not saying you can't glorify God, even with the difference of opinion, but just remember, you're in a fallen world with a fallen spouse with fallen children. It's not, it's not going to be easy. No work in this world is easy because it's a fallen world. And Adam, when he goes off to work to cultivate the fields, it's no easier for him. He's working with a cursed world, a cursed ground. All those things that he's trying to work in his little corner of his employment, it's going to be hard. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And, and, and you're going to eat the plants of the field. It's going to be hard, but you've got to realize it'll be by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. So no life is easy. That's why everyone at some point starts despairing of their lives. Talk last night about you dare not think about that in any kind of sense of self-hatred or self-loathing. Stop with all that. Just get prepared. You're called to exercise dominion and reflecting God's leadership in your little corner of the world, but you need to understand this. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be difficult, but it'll all be worth it. Because in Colossians chapter 3 says, when you do that work heartily from the soul, from the inside of your heart, and you say, I'm raising children for the Lord, I'm running a business for the Lord. I'm driving these nails in for the Lord. I'm laying carpet for the Lord. I'm fixing plumbing for the Lord. I'm drawing architectural plans for the Lord. That's in my heart. I'm doing it not for men, even though I've got bosses and managers and shareholders. I do it for God. 
Bible says, from the Lord, you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord. The dominion of heaven hangs in his hands, and you now are serving him by exercising your dominion. He's going to reward you accordingly. Start with your room, huh? Got a messy room? Clean it. Got a disorganized drawer? Organize it. You got a desk and it's a mess? Fix it. Exercise dominion. God made you in his image and in his likeness so that you can have dominion. Get dominion over those things. And while we're talking about dominion, let's talk about another thing that's really hard to have dominion over your money. You need dominion over your money. You're supposed to have dominion over the things that God gives you. And God gives you not just things. He gives you the money to buy those things. And you need to start exercising dominion over that right now. And some of you are not raised as you ought to be raised, and I'll say that right now for any of the parents that are listening to the stream right now. Maybe they have, maybe, when you want something, they say, well, yes or no, and they just pay for it. You need to learn how to manage money. You have to manage things in life, and there's nothing trickier to manage than money. And you got to start because God is entrusting you with money. Maybe a very little bit of money right now, and if your parents are wise, they're giving you an allowance. They're giving you an allowance for contributing to the family, being part of what you're supposed to do, your chores and all of that, and you should have a wallet, you should have a purse, you ought to have some money. And if not, go home and tell your parents, the pastor said you need some money. And get some money, and if you're in high school, get a job, start making some money, and then manage that money. And it may not be much money. You recognize how much the government takes from your paycheck if you do work, and you say, I got no, hardly any money at all to work with. Well, if you can be faithful with a little bit, then here's the thing. God knows you'll be faithful with much. The one who's dishonest, if you're not right, if you're not a good manager, if you're a sluggard with your money, if it's just a little bit of money, I guarantee you'll be a sluggard with a lot of it. You'll be dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in unrighteous wealth. Now he starts to talk about the fact that even everything between now and the time you die, it's just earthly wealth. It's all going away anyway. Who's going to entrust you with true riches? And that's not only true from God's perspective, it's true from your boss's perspective and your manager's perspective. I've been hiring people and overseeing people for decades. And there's a lot of people out there, they want their money, they want their paycheck, and they're lazy workers. They don't understand that if I, don't, if, if I can't trust you, even as a human boss, to work hard and be excellent and exercise dominion with the kind of care and oversight that God would expect people in his own image to exercise, who would ever give you a raise? Who would ever promote you? And God's saying the same thing from heaven's perspective. If you, between now and the time you die, don't manage money well, you don't exercise dominion over your money the way God wants, he's not going to entrust you with eternal riches not been faithful in that which is another's, because this is all another's, right? This is not yours. Who's going to give you that which is your own? Let's just talk about that another. Everything in this world is God's. Everything. Every Lamborghini, every mansion, every company, every bit of technology, every intellectual pro uh, property, all of it. Whatever's under the whole heaven is mine, God says. Psalm says, Psalm 50, verse 12, God says, the world and its fullness are mine. Everything in it. Even the things that you in the little corner of your mastery, you came up with. If you made that, that laptop, that computer, that car, that technology, that whatever, it's mine. I've given you all of that. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declared the Lord of hosts. So if you got a job, you happen to be doing well, and I got a job in high school early on, and, and, and I started making a good bit of money. I just happened to fall into a weird little job where I was selling on commission, and I started making money. And I could start to think, well, that's my money because I earned that money. And God says, just remember this. No matter how much silver you have, how much gold you have, how much money you have in your wallet, it's mine. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth, the prayer here is lifted up to God, is yours, God. Both riches and honor come from you. If I got any of it, you directed it to me. You gave me the job. You gave me the ability to make money in that job. You rule over all. His dominion is always supreme and absolute. Ours is always temporary and what I would call derived. It all is something that you're just doing on loan from God. In your hand, in God's hand, is power and might. And in your hand, it's in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. God owns everything, and anything you have, God gives you. If you become a rich person, if you become a wealthy person, if you have a lot of money in your bank, the Bible says it comes from God. So for you to focus on, I just want to make money, 
really just need to understand a little bit about that. You are ultimately going to serve something that you don't even have the opportunity to own because you won't own it when you have it. God owns it and can take it away anytime he wants. So you better serve the God who gives the money. You better not serve the money. You ought to think about a job that can glorify God in exercising dominion and reflecting his image in the world as opposed to saying, I just want a job where I can make a lot of money. Because it's God who gives the money. And when he decides to give the money, he gives it to you. He can take it away. But you need to understand you need to serve him and not the money. Because when it comes, push comes to shove, you see commands in Scripture about what you should do with your money. You're going to say, well, I love the money more than I love the God who tells me what to do with my money. You're going to hate one and love the other. Or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So let me give you some more advice here. Parental advice and pastoral advice and biblical advice. On the authority of God, make your decision right now as a young person that whatever God starts positioning for my life to do, I need to realize this, I cannot serve the paycheck. i got to serve the God who's called me to exercise dominion. And if you desire to be rich, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're in trouble. Do not desire to be I remember that guy, I'll never forget that conversation. After summer camp, it was in a summer at my home church as a teenager, as a kid, because I just want to make as much money as possible. And I remember looking at him funny, and he responded to me this way, well, I just, if I have a lot, I can give a lot to other people. I'm just, what a cop-out. The guy wanted to be rich. And here's what the Bible says about people who want to be rich. You're going to fall into temptation. You're going to be serving money, and it's going to take you into an inevitable collision with God. It, it, it is. Your loyalty to God is going to be tested. It's going to be a trap. You can fall into all kinds of senseless and harmful desires in your life to have the stuff that money buys, and it's going to plunge you into ruin and destruction. Plenty of people who sit here loving God, reciting scripture verses, listening to sermons intently. When push comes to shove and money is on the line, a lot of people say, I'm, I'm done with all that. If you want to be a reprobate, easy. Just try and make as much money as you can. Go out there and be rich. No, instead, you should have this perspective. It goes on to say, if you have money, whatever money you have, you happen to have a lot of it, hey, you're to do good and be rich in good works. That's what I'd like to be rich in. That's your decision. If I'm going to serve God, God will always be rich in good works. I want to do good things. I want to be generous. Whatever money I have, I want to be generous. I want to be ready to share it. I'm just ready. If there's a need, I'm going to meet the need as much as I can. And when you do that, guess what? All this money that goes away, you're storing up for yourselves treasure and a good foundation for the future so that you can take hold of that which is truly life. Because all the money you make in this world, you're going to leave it behind. Principles. Your parents should be teaching you this. Let me reinforce it. Everything you get, as soon as you get it, you need to turn around and take the first of that money and you need to give it to God. Right? God doesn't have a bank account anywhere. You have to give it to God through the medium of the church that you are a part of. That's what you need to do. I don't care if you're making two bucks you know, for, uh, for whatever. Right? You're a babysitter. You make a couple bucks here or there. You give the first fruits of what you make to God. Deuteronomy explains this. Behold, I now bring the first fruits from the ground. They are farmers, right? So the very first thing they got, instead of going to the market and selling it, because who knows? I got to store up for the winter, right? That's what it says in Proverbs 6. Well, no, I give it to the Lord, which, which you, O oh Lord, have given me. You gave it to me. I'm giving the first of it back to you. The Bible says you shall set it down before the Lord your God. And a lot of us can't set it down. That means you set it down. You leave it. You say, I'm giving this to God. I'm giving it away to the Lord. And then I'm worshiping God in that act of giving. You hear that? If you come to big church here on the weekend, you'll hear whoever's given announcements talk about giving this as an act of worship. I'm saying God has given me all things. So listen, you need to learn to give. and You need to get into giving as soon as you get any money, knowing that it's God's to start with. You need to figure out how to do that. You go on online, you need to figure out how to give. Well, I'll give to some other Christian organization. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Sorry, the Bible says you got to give it to the place that's feeding you spiritually, teaching you the Bible. That's where you got to give it. Now, you can give other places, but you got to give here. That's what the Bible says if this is your church. Some of you aren't even Christians. I know I'm talking to people that, you know, you got to start with repentance and faith. But once you get repentance and faith down and you say, I'm now a follower of Christ, and God gives you $3, you better start giving. Okay, I guess I'll give. No, you got to give with the right attitude. You got to decide in your heart how much you're going to give, and you got to give not reluctantly, 
not because you were forced to, because God loves a cheerful giver. Exercising dominion over your money, which is very hard to do, starts with you saying, I am going to be someone who doesn't serve money. I don't seek to be rich. I'm going to serve to exercise dominion as God is reflecting his attributes in my leadership somewhere in my little corner of the world. And whatever money comes from that, I'm going to give off the top to God. Let me give you some more advice from Scripture here. You also need to start saving money. The second thing you do when you get money, you take it and you give some of it to God, and you take some of it and you save it. Look at the passage again. Go to the Antos, sluggard. Consider her ways. Be wise without having any chief, any officer or ruler. She prepares bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Why? Because winter is coming and you might need it. So you better store up more now so that you can have what you need later. You do that for the entirety of your student years, guess what? You will have precious treasure and oil. It's going to be in the wise man's dwelling because you're giving to the Lord and you're saving. The foolish man, though, whatever he gets, he just devours. You get the money, I want to spend it. I can't wait for my next paycheck because then I'm going to buy this. Can't wait for my next allowance. I want to save up three allowances and then I'm going to get that. Stop, stop, stop. You're going to be another statistic you're going to be someone who finally gets the debit card, then you get the credit card, then you're going to go to college, and I'm going to go to college I want, I'm going to get a student loan, and you're going to be buried in debt. Buried in debt. You understand how bad debt is, right? Debt is someone lending you money for money. They're renting you money, and they're compounding the interests. You should hate credit cards, and you should do all that you can to never have debt. Only two things. I would ever tell you, now it's parental advice, I would tell you ever to have any debt for, right? That's a house and a car, and that's it. And if you can buy the car outright, you should buy the car outright. Other than that, you should not have debt. Debt is a ripoff. Here's what the Bible says about debt. The rich rules over the poor. The poor have not stored up. They have not saved. They haven't given, probably. And the borrower becomes a slave of the lender. And that's the problem in our society right now, and it comes through people that cannot exercise dominion over their own hearts, and that's reflected in their wallet. Okay, well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to clean my room, exercise dominion, made in the image of God, got that figured out, going to take my money, figure that out, start saving, start giving. Great. Another area I think it's really hard for us to control. That's your body. You're not your own, you're bought with a price. You're supposed to glorify God in your body, with your body, with your physical body. You have stewardship over that and you got to exercise dominion over things in your world that God has given you some kind of influence over. And here's the thing, even if you're a toddler, guess what? You may not even have own a toy or have a toy box, right? Which every toddler in America does. But even if you have nothing, here's what I know you have. You got a body and you're supposed to exercise dominion over it. Well, you already told us last, last, this week, first Timothy chapter four, you said godliness is what it's about. Godliness has value in every way and holds promise for the present life and the life to come. So be godly, read the Bible, pray, give money to God, all that great. My body doesn't matter. Well, that passage started this way. Bodily training is of some value. And you know, that's true. It is of some value. It has some value. What kind of value does it have for me to care about my body? Well, here's what the Bible says. Not because it's not going to go away and get old and die. It's going to. But if you discipline your body and you keep it under control, you understand that word it reflects Genesis chapter one, exercising dominion. If you can exercise dominion over your body, right? Then after you tell people that they ought to be godly, guess what? You'll be able to keep your body godly and you won't disqualify yourself and become a hypocrite. So you need to get your body under control. And here's the problem for most Americans. They're eating garbage every single day as much as they want it. Whenever they feel like they want something to eat, they eat. And I'm telling you this, you've got to learn now. You've got to learn now when it comes to money, responsibility, and what you shove in your mouth when you're hungry. You got to stop. You understand. I can, I can go into all the stats about obesity in your generation that is the worst it has ever been. Compare you and this group and this crowd with this many individuals and put you on a giant scale, take you back to my grandparents' age who sat here in America in a good time. They, I mean, they had food and you put them on a scale. Do you think they would be heavier or we would be heavier? There's no comparison. Diabetes through the roof. People are out of control. The Bible says we never should be out of control. Our stomach should not be telling us what to do. Matter of fact, the false teacher, he's saying, they just want to do things so that they can get their appetites filled. And he uses this analogy, and it's a good one because the truth of it is the analogy proves the point Paul is making. 
But the analogy and the, the foundation is true, and that is there are some people that whenever their belly says it's time to eat, they eat, they eat. Their end is destruction. That's not good. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. They don't care about it. With minds set on earthly things. That's what these false teachers he's talking about. But the principle is true. There are some people that whenever their belly tells them to go, they go. So who's in charge? You or your belly? I guess it's your belly. You got to learn to stop that. You have to stop that now as a junior high or in a high school and say, I'm not going to let my body and my appetites tell me what to do. Romans 16, 18, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. It's much like money. Money's this great, attractive thing. I want money because then I can get what I want. It's the same thing with food, you understand. I want to eat, and so that's a very powerful thing, and so I got choices sometimes to make, and if food comes first, it's a problem. I thought it was good to eat food. It is good to eat food. All things are lawful for me, right? You want to eat a cheeseburger? Great, eat a cheeseburger. Del Taco? Great, do it, right? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Maybe not the third chalupa is probably not helpful, right? Can you slow down? All things are, are, are lawful for me. Not all things are helpful. And here's the real deal. I will not be dominated by anything. Can you stop eating? Even when your stomach says, I want to keep eating, you got to exercise dominion. You have dominion over your body. Something in the Bible that's expected. It's called fasting. You know, all that fasting is, is telling my stomach, you're not in charge. I want to eat, but I'm not going to eat because I'm exercising dominion over this thing right here, which comes even before my room and my wallet, my body. My body says, I want a Snickers bar right now. I'm going to say to my body, right? Some days have your Snickers bar, enjoy it. And that'll be a gift of God and I'll give thanks for it. And it'll be sanctified. And God will say, I'm so glad that my child gets to enjoy the Snickers bar. But then other days, and you say, yeah, Belly wants a snicker bar, but I'm going to say no. There needs to be the practice in your Christian life at some point of fasting, which means you say, I'm going to say no to my appetites. Jesus said, when you fast. That's interesting. He didn't say, if you choose to fast. He expects that you're going to be fasting, which means that you're going to say no to your appetite. There's going to be times that you say no. Well, if you do that, don't be like, oh, I'm finally fasting, Pastor Rod, Pastor John. Look at me. I'm an ungodly person. Yeah, if I look a little, little gaunt here, it's because I'm trying, you know, I skipped lunch today because I'm trying to say no to my appetite. They disfigure their faces. Their fasting can be seen by others. Truly, I say, they've received their reward. That's it. They get it. You get a little pat in the back by somebody who's ridiculous to approve you putting on a show for them. Well, that's all you get. But when you fast instead, you should anoint your head, which means you should you know, comb your hair, shampoo your hair, all that get, look fine. Wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others. It's not about you performing to other people. It's how to be done quietly and, and silently so that your father who is in secret, right, he can see it. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. And you know what the reward is? You know what the reward is for you fasting? It's you not being dominated by your appetites. It's you dominating your appetites. Does that mean all of us need to be super fit? No, I'm not saying that. Got to go work out at the gym every day. not saying that either. I'm just saying that there ought to be times throughout the week when you want to shove food in your mouth and you say, I'm not going to do it because I'm in charge. Because God said I'm supposed to exercise dominion. That's not how most of us live. That's not how we live. There were people in Crete, the island of Crete. Cretans, Paul said, he quotes one of their own poets. They're liars. They're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And Paul goes, oh, that's not true. No, he says it is true. That's how people are in that island. And I'd say a lot of people in America are like that. Therefore, here's what you should do. And I'm doing it probably the first time, I don't know, ever. I don't know if John or, or Rod have said this to you before, but I'm now rebuking you for it. I should rebuke you sharply for it. If you've never fasted, if you don't know what it is to say no to your appetites, not saying all the time, but sometimes, then I'm going to rebuke you and say, hey, that's wrong. Why? So you may sound in the faith. And here's the first thing you ought to believe, that God created you in his image to exercise dominion, starting with your body. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility. It's great to have good leaders. What kind of leaders? Good leaders who, look at this, and princes who feast at the proper time. They don't feast whenever they feel like it. It's the right time. It's time for a feast. And the celebrations in Israel in particular, there were these uh, ceremonies or Passover. There was uh, uh, the first fruits and, and, and the Feast of Tabernacles. All those were times for feasting. Great. Have a feast. There should be times you sit back with your belly overflowing going, oh, it feels so stuffed. It feels so good. You should do that at Thanksgiving. You should do that a lot of times. There's plenty of times for feasting. 
but you ought to feast at the proper time. You should do it to get up every day and eat so that you can be strong to go do what God has called you. And not for drunkenness. Not just so you can feel like you're full. In this case, drunkenness. I mean, that's, they only had one beverage there. You had water. I mean, that was just water. Or you had a beverage, and that was an alcoholic beverage. Wine had a much smaller alcoholic content than our alcohol. But I do think that's something at least I should touch on real quick. And not for drunkenness drunkenness. We do live in a world that's got plenty of things that'll get you drunk anytime. You want to talk about not exercising dominion over your body? Start shoving alcohol into your body. Matter of fact, when I talk about that, if my job is to have dominion over my body, dominion, being in charge of my body, I probably don't want to start shoving things into my body that will do the opposite of that. I'm not saying that drinking alcohol is wrong. Well, I am saying that to you because drinking alcohol before you're 21 is illegal. You understand? You can't do it. I mean, you can do it, and if you do it, though, I'm, I just want to tell you, you're breaking the law of God, which is much, much, much more important than you breaking the law of the state of California. And so there should be no one in this room that is drinking, right? No one, uh, no, no students in this room ought to be drinking. You just shouldn't. And I'd say you need to think about it even if you're not a student and rethink this whole thing and think about my exercising of dominion. 30% of the people in our country by the eighth grade have consumed alcohol. 11% of all alcohol consumed in the United States is consumed by those that are not allowed to drink. Think about that. 11% of all alcohol is consumed by people in your demographic under 20, 21. By the way, and when teenagers drink, 90% of underage drinking is usually binge drinking. It's drinking at parties. It's not you sitting and having a glass of wine at dinner. That's not. That may be what your parents do, but that's not what most teenagers do when they get the bottle of alcohol. Well, the Bible's very clear about this. Binge drinking is drinking to get buzzed and to get drunk, and the Bible says that is, it doesn't matter how old you are. You can be 99 years old. If you're getting drunk, you're in sin. Do not get drunk with wine, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. And speaking of dominion, here's a passage for you. Proverbs 31.4. It is not for kings, guess what kings are supposed to do? Exercise dominion over other people. Not for kings to drink wine or rulers to take strong drink, right? Because they're supposed to be exercising. If anyone should be sharp, it should be people exercising dominion over other people. You don't want your pilots to be drinking. You don't want your judges to be drinking. And I'm saying this as a Christian in my life, I... I I don't drink any alcohol, and the reason I don't drink alcohol is because I'm trying to exercise dominion not only over myself, which I think is going to be a lot harder with the kind of alcoholic content that exists in alcohol today as compared to in Jesus' time, but I'm saying this, even if I'm allowed to, which of course I am in the Bible and I'm over 21, so I can do it, I'm just saying, I just would like to think of myself in this passage. I've got some dominion to exercise that is, frankly, I mean, just honestly, it's more dominion than most people have. I mean, a lot of people have a lot more dominion than me, but I've got more dominion over things and responsibilities and budgets and people than other. So I want to be really super careful. God is pro-sobriety, and I'd like to be my sharpest to exercise dominion. So I'm not interested. Junior hires, by the way, 10% of junior hires drank alcohol in the past month. This is not a survey from the narrow, but I'm saying this is a national, <laughs> a national statistic. 5% were drunk. 5% of junior hires passed the legal alcohol blood limit, blood alcohol limit in the past month. High schoolers, not getting any better, one-third of high schoolers in our country have, have been drinking alcohol in the past month. 18% passed that legal limit. 18% of all high schoolers. They're not even legal to drink yet. That's what's going on in our day. Well, college students, half the college students are legal to drink. 80% of college students regularly consume alcohol. 80%. 50% engage in binge drinking, which is party drinking, which is to get buzzed and to get drunk. 50%. Well, that's what college is about, man. That's college, right? College is great. So what? What does it matter? Here's why it matters, guys. Some of you are, are, are seniors this year. You're going to go off to college. Well, good. Finally, you know, won't worry about that. Won't have to hear all the pastors telling me not to drink and my parents well, aren't around. About, about 700,000 physical assaults take place when college students are drinking. About 100,000, and this number is going up, 
every single year. 100,000 sexual assaults and rapes take place when alcohol is involved in college students' lives. There's about 2,000 deaths of college students every year that is related to and explained by their use of alcohol. At least 20% of college students are addicted to alcohol. They are what would be technically called in our society an alcoholic, what the Bible would call a drunkard. And a drunkard, as the Bible says, does not inherit eternal life. 20% of college students. It's linked to numerous suicide attempts, vandalism, injuries, drunk driving, etc. And I've been in the ministry long enough to know when something bad happens, particularly in a college student's life, my first question is, was alcohol involved? And about 99 times out of 100, the answer is yes. You can avoid a lot of trouble not going along with the crowd. As long as we're talking about the crowd, we live in a day, speaking of getting buzzed, where marijuana is all the rage. Medical use of marijuana is legal in 36 states plus the District of Columbia. Recreational use is okay, allowed, legally allowed in 18 states. It's still a Scheduled One controlled substance on the national level. It's illegal in the country, and yet it is recreate. You want to go get buzzed? Go do it. Just like you would get, get drunk. Go do that. Teenagers, you think they're smoking any pot? I don't know. Teenagers, do you think teenagers are smoking any pot these days? I think they are. 25% of teenagers have used marijuana in the last month. 25%. 25%. A quarter of all teenagers are. 70% who do use, do so at least three times a month. So this is a regular pattern. 30% who use marijuana, right, become addicted to it. They got to have it all the time. 30%. Teens are four to seven times more likely to become addicted to other substances. Other harder drugs, and I know, gateway drug, right? You've heard this, not a scare tactic. These are just the facts. These are the facts. So what, man? What does it matter? Well, I think it matters, and here's why it matters. Because if you're thinking about your dad who was at some concert back in the day and admits to smoking marijuana, I just want to tell you, in the 80s, 3% was the level of, of THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the function of the chemical compound that actually makes you buzz. 3%. Today's marijuana, 6%, and that's the low end. 6% plus of THC. That means it's way more important or, or more, more potent. Hash oils, baking, the brownies, the cookies, you've seen these, I'm sure. You've heard of them. 50 to 80% THC levels. That means when someone hands you a brownie, it's worse than you taking a bong and smoking marijuana in it because it's going to buzz you that much. Think about 80%. Oh yeah, I heard my dad did it when he was in college. Great. He may have done this with a 3% THC level. You're eating a brownie with 80% potentially THC levels in it. Potency of marijuana, three to four beers is what it takes for the average high schooler to get intoxicated, to get to a 0.08 level. Today, it takes one to three hits on one joint based on the THC levels to get the same level of intoxication. In other words, you could take one or two hits on a joint and be just as impaired and crash your car into someone as much as you would as if you'd had four beers that night. All of which you should not be engaged in, regardless of what the government allows. Just because it's legal does not make it moral. You understand that as Christians, I hope. Oh, they're really loud about this. Well, they speak loud boasts of folly. And they entice people by their sensual passions of the flesh. It's all the party culture, party mentality, the chill mentality. They promise freedom, right? This is going to be great. Come do it with us. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. Most of them become addicted. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. This is all about the image of God, you understand. Think this through now. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Let them be in charge. Now, there's only one that's ultimately in charge. First Timothy 6 puts it, the king of kings and lord of lords. There are lords and there are kings. There are people that are exercising great dominion on earth. And that glorifies God if it's done right. But he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. To him be honor, look at this now, in eternal dominion. No one's got more dominion than God. Our father has the ultimate dominion. But you, right, are supposed to exercise. God, this is the prayer in Psalm 8, You've given us dominion over the work of your hands, starting with our bodies, our wallets, in your case, your room, your corner of the world, wherever that might be. 
All of that is where God has called you to exercise dominion. I'm asking you to be like God. Be like God and exercise dominion over your life in every department, and that will bring glory to God. Let's pray. God, let us exercise better dominion. Some of us have been lax about this or maybe not even as concerned as we ought to be about other people around us that are just completely giving up dominion over their lives, their food, their alcohol consumption, which is illegal. God, people involved in drugs, things that really for us, we should be as concerned not only about those things that really can wreck people's lives quickly, but even the things that can wreck our lives slowly, like how we manage our money. Like what we do, even in terms of how we keep our our sock drawer organized. God, let us see the connection here. You've called us to exercise control, mastery, lordship over things, and that brings honor to you if we do it right. So help us do it right, God. I think that means that we're not sleeping in till all hours of the mid-morning, but we're up early. We're doing what you've called us to do. We're getting to work. We're not loving sleep. We're saying, God, what can we do? How can we position and direct our lives to even aim toward that, that career, that life, that influence in this world that you've called us to have? God, even for some of the young ladies in this room that will grow up to be moms, have a house full of children they direct into powerful usage in the world, including raising their own children and going into the world and making a huge difference. I pray you'd encourage them in a world that does not encourage them to raise children. God, for the rest of us, we'll never have that opportunity to raise children as a mom. God, we are also hearing it's all about the money or the power or the privilege. Help us to know it's not about that. It's about serving you by serving people and showing that we can be organized. We can exercise dominion. We can be in charge and exercise a kind of mastery that brings glory and honor to you. Let us start with the things we can control. Our mouths, our minds, our bodies, our appetites, our money. Let us do that, God, in a much better way from this point on as we trust in you to give us the power as we apply ourselves to it in Jesus' name.